The Real Investment Show. The sell-off yesterday, of course, you know, two things happened yesterday in the markets that are important to pay attention to, but it's also important not to misconstrue the action in the wrong direction. Markets failed at the 100-day moving average yesterday, and that's been a key level of support really for the markets going back to October, November of last year. So it's certainly bearish in that frame that markets have failed at an important resistance level. That does suggest there is more downside risk to markets, and, and I certainly don't want to discount that at all. But on a very short-term basis, the markets are very, very oversold. And when I'm talking about a short-term basis, I'm talking about a matter of days or a couple of weeks. And when you typically get a market that's this oversold and you know as, as bearish as it is in terms of sentiment, you typically get a counter-trend rally to the markets. And that gives you a couple of opportunities. And this is something that we talk about a good bit. You know, risk management is a function of controlling outcomes. That's what risk management is. And in the financial markets, we have to control outcomes to some degree because we're guessing at the future. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month. Um, I've talked about before on the show is that uh, back in the late 90s, they did a survey of people that make predictions. And they wanted to calculate just how accurate these future predictors were. So they interviewed a whole bunch of different people, right? So they interviewed meteorologists, weathermen, um, psychics, uh, fortune tellers, uh, tarot card readers, you name it. They All these people, right? They, they interviewed all these people that make predictions, Wall Street analysts. And what they found out was is that Predictions were only valid for about three days. And the most accurate predictors of the future were meteorologists. <laughs> and you complain about them never being right. So <laughs> just saying. <laughs> but yeah, so, I mean, you know, trying to make a guess of anything in the future is, you know, it's a complete crapshoot. So all we can do is we can make some assumptions based on probabilities and possibilities and try to try to to model an outcome that we think there's going to be but then we need to manage that risk accordingly and so this is kind of the big thing here right we know historically that when markets are this oversold and this bearish you typically get a rally but does that mean the markets go right back into bull mode and go to brand new highs it's possible that that could happen there is a very high probability right now because of the structural damage to the markets, both internally and price-wise. So we take a look at a lot of market internals. There's been very negative breadth, et cetera, that we have likely seen the highs for the markets for this year. So for the next three months, we probably will not see a new high in three months. Now, that could be entirely wrong. We could rally right back, have a 7, 8, 9, 10% rally in the markets and be right back to new highs by the end of the year. That could certainly happen. You would need something to occur to help provide that kind of lift, right? So what could that be? Well, the Fed could retract their whole tapering statement. Uh, we're not going to taper. We're going to keep it going. We could have 
you know, all of a sudden Democrats and Republicans fall in line with each other and they pass a, you know, $8 trillion spending bill and we're going to start sending checks back to households, right? I mean, things can happen. I'm not saying they will. I'm just saying they can. They can certainly change the attitudes of the markets. But there are some headwinds in the markets, as we were talking about just a moment ago, that, you know, are certainly weighing on the economy short term. Economic growth is slowing and is slowing rapidly. Not surprising, it's doing exactly what we expected it would. It's just going back to its normal long-term growth trend. That's all that's happening here. We have a lot of supply chain disruptions, et cetera, that are building up in the, in the markets. That's increasing price pressures on consumers. That's crimping their spending. That's going to further impact and slow economic growth. And even though we forget this from time to time, earnings of companies come from the economy. They don't just magically appear out of thin air. So earnings long-term cannot grow faster than the economy because that's where they come from. So if economic growth is now slowing rapidly back down to 2%, these extremely elevated expectations for earnings growth over the next year are going to have to contract. And that's going to make valuations more difficult for stocks at this point. Because this year, the rally in the market has been based on expectations of this spectacular earnings growth, which may not manifest itself. So these are things to be paying attention to. And this is why we're kind of talking about this in, in the, the article today on the website. There are certainly things in the short term. So here's some good bullish news for you. In the short term, there's some things that are happening in the markets which are encouraging. First of all, the sell-off yesterday occurred on lighter volume. And in fact, there was a good bit of buying underneath the surface yesterday. So even though the markets were down yesterday, after they bottomed early in the morning, they kind of flatlined and rose mildly during the day. Didn't make a big recovery, but made a bit of a recovery off the lows. And underneath that surface, there was a good bit of buying. Volume was also lighter yesterday even though it was a sell-off day. Well, one thing we've seen here recently is on these sell-off days, we have big spikes in volumes, and that didn't occur yesterday. So I suggest that sellers here are getting a bit exhausted. So, you know, if you're looking at your portfolio going, man, I'm just getting my butt kicked lately. I need to do something. Be careful. This is a note we make in our article today on the website is that sometimes we feel like we have to do something. We just, I, I got to do something, man. I'm just, I'm losing money and, you know, this this isn't fun anymore. If you take a look at what's going on with the, the Reddit meme stock traders, they've completely lost interest in stocks. They're back into Bitcoin now. Bitcoin's uh, $50,000 today. So, you know, but sometimes we just feel like we have to do, I've got to do something. No, you don't. You don't have to do anything. I'm not saying you shouldn't do something. I'm just not saying you don't have to do something. And sometimes when markets are in this kind of weird position where they're getting oversold, they're likely near a short-term bottom, that's when that emotional bias overtakes us and we start feeling like we have to do something. And that's that, that need to panic, and that's where we wind up selling bottoms. Sometimes the best thing to do is just to do nothing, and you got to suffer with a little bit, and that's okay. If you've been kind of balancing risk in your portfolio and adjusting exposures that we've been recommending here really over the course of the last several months, yeah, you're down here, of course, because markets are down, but you're not down as much as the market. 
So try to keep some perspective on what's happening with your portfolio as well relative to the markets. This is why asset allocation works well in most cases. The other thing here is to reevaluate the amount of risk that you're taking. So again, I know we feel like we have to take some action. We don't. We need to, we need to be patient here and try to let the market tell us what it wants to do. But once the market tells us what it wants to do, we've got then we need to take some action. If we start breaking serious levels of support, which we haven't done yet. Yeah, the 100-day moving average is important. We failed at resistant yesterday, and that's something that we need to definitely pay attention to because that is a bearish signal for the markets. There's some important support going back to the July lows right where we are currently, and we bounced off that a little bit yesterday. So we have some support right below where stocks are. If we break that, we got a different conversation here, but that, that will be the market telling us that it wants to go lower. At that point, we need to reduce risk. And this is the thing that, you know, when we talk about reevaluating how much risk you've had in your portfolio, et cetera, this is a good point to, to reevaluate your position. Markets are down 5%, completely normal correction, nothing to be panicking about. But if you've been sitting up at night and worrying about your portfolio, it's because you have too much risk in it. You, you've taken on too much equity risk. You've probably taken on risk in some of the more aggressive meme-type stocks, things that have been you know talked about in the news or whatever. And those are getting monkey-hammered right now. So that is probably a good area to go into your portfolio and start reevaluating just how much risk you're taking. And particularly if your portfolio is down more than the market, that's really a good sign you've got too much risk. So whatever rally we get back to some level of former resistance, or if we break support here, we've got to start making some changes and you need to be prepared to take some action and do so. And this is the key. I mean, and again, as we, and, and as we go through the article, look, there's some bullish things coming up for the end of the year. We've got the seasonally strong period of the year. About 78% of the time, Markets are positive in the last three months of the year. Doesn't mean we can't have some more beatings before morale improves, right? So we've certainly got that capability here in the market short term that the markets could beat you a bit more. And that's the way markets work. Markets tend to drive the most people to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. So it's important to remain focused on possibilities versus probabilities. Now, does 78% of the time the market's positive in the last three months of the year? That still leaves, you know, 22% of the time it's not, right? So there's a chance that markets don't rally into the end of the year. It's a possibility. And we want to, we want to, to provide that bit of, of risk analysis to portfolios. And so, in the article at the bottom, we actually post our 15 money management rules that we use in our own shop for our own clients. And we provide those for you to try to give you a kind of a framework to work with in managing your own money. So it's also on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back after the break. Don't go away. You know, there's some things that are going on within the economy right now that are certainly uh, worrisome 
on a couple of different fronts, energy prices being one of those, of course. Uh, oil prices set to really break out um, to a much higher level. Uh, there's some expectations we're going to have an exceptionally cold winter. Um, I caution you with those expectations. Let's go back to our you know, analysis a few minutes ago of the best forecasters on the planet, which are meteorologists, and they're accurate for three days, not three months. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, we've heard these claims of, you know, we're going to have an exceptionally cold winter. We're going to have a super hot winter. And it's all due to climate change, whatever. Nobody really knows. And every year it kind of migrates back and forth. So right now, though, there's an expectation that we're going to have a very, very cold winter. And that that's going to lead to a surge in oil and natural gas prices that are going to be between $90 and $100 a barrel for oil. That's obviously an inflationary input into the economy where there's already a good bit of inflation. This is going to put the Fed into a much tighter position on monetary policy in terms of having to reduce liquidity to markets, as well as potentially start talking about hiking rates, um, particularly if these supply chain disruptions, et cetera, do not start resolving themselves sometime soon. You know, it's interesting right now, if you take a look at, for instance, like the Institute of Supply Management, their index, one of the things, and, and it's, it's interesting because we studied about this when I was in college, back in the 80s, just to tell you how old I am. But back then, one of the, in my economics class, one of the kind of the new trending things for the economy was this ado adoption of the Japanese style of inventory management. And this was a point in time where companies were really coming around to this idea of what they call just-in-time inventory management. And of course, you know, with the advent of FedEx and UPS and uh, overnight delivery and, and, you know, getting where we could get, you know, goods and services delivered within four days or five days. And then it's gotten down to three days and now two days, now overnight. And pretty soon with Amazon, you'll just think about it and it'll show up on your, on your doorstep. Um, I mean, they're already listening to you anyway. So, you know, this is, there was no need to store a lot of inventory because I could manufacture just what my orders were. I could wait for the order to come in, manufacture it, ship it out and have it to the consumer when they wanted it. And that's all fine and dandy, which means I, lay, I had, didn't have to tie up a bunch of capital into inventory, waiting to sell it. So that made companies much more profitable, which made them more efficient, lean. This was great. The problem with just-in-time inventory management is, is that there's ever a crimp in delivery or supply, you're kind of in a box because you don't have any inventory. And that's what happened. When we shut down the economy and we, we decimated these supply chains, all of a sudden there was no inventory because nobody was stocking excess inventory to sell. Sent prices skyrocketing. Couldn't get anything. We ordered computers for our office. So, you know, it's just that time, you know, that we needed to replace the computers in our office. We ordered computers back in April. They're supposed to show up this month. We'll see. But that's just kind of what's going on. And it's interesting because now we're seeing companies starting to do inventory buildups. Right. In the last couple of ISM reports, we're starting to see inventory show up, inventory buildings show up as part of the numbers, which we haven't seen before. 
So now companies are starting to stock up on inventory saying, hey, I don't know how long this is going to last. So I better, you know, stock up my inventory so I can keep supplying orders until this thing kind of straightens itself out. Now, there's a couple of, of issues with this. First of all, there are numerous ships, 60, 70, I'm not even sure how many now, um, changes every day. But ships off the coast of California waiting to port. It's taking up to 10 days to get a ship docked and get their, in, their uh, inventory off the ship and into the port. And then you've got to ship those goods across the country. Uh, there's a In Texas, they are paying truck drivers up to $14,000 a week to deliver goods. If you can't do math, that's 60 grand a month, about 650 grand a year. So, you know, might not be a bad time to go get your CDL, start uh, becoming a truck driver. Now, that's not going to last forever, right? A um, couple of things are going to happen here. First of all, at some point, you're going to resolve the supply chain issue. And that will go away. Now the problem becomes is that you've already got to build up an inventory. Now you've got a whole bunch of inventory coming in. And that that inventory problem that you had, being too lean on inventory, now becomes an inventory glut. And look, when you're paying truck drivers fourteen grand a week, or whatever the number is that they're getting paid, you're going to start attracting a lot of people going... I'm going to stop being an Uber driver. I'm going to go be a truck driver. I'm still driving. I get paid a lot more to drive trucks. So you're going to attract a lot of people to come be truck drivers. Then you're going to wind up with a glut of truck drivers. But this is just the way the pendulum swings. We always do this. And, you know, this is the problem with just-in-time inventory management is that one little hiccup creates a massive debacle through the entire economy. And now that pendulum has swung all the way in the other direction. So now it's got to swing back. And we're going to go from being too lean on inventory to too glutted on inventory. And then that's going to lead to deflationary pressures in the economy. And those prices will come down. Inventories will start to reduce, but so will demand that's going to be more deflationary pressure. And so then eventually we'll kind of work our way back to the middle. We'll kind of solve everything out and we'll get inventories back in line and it'll, it'll all kind of go back to norms, but that's going to take some time. But in that process, we're going to swing in both directions. And this is one of the key things to remember is that you never go to one extreme and then just back to the middle. You're going to go in both direct. You're you're going to swing in both directions equally, and that's just the way physics works, right? And it works in the markets, works in the economy, works everywhere. And this is the one thing that economists never predict: is they don't ever. They always extrapolate one thing. So here we are. We've got this super lean inventory and the supply chain disruptions, and now we're making assumptions. This is going to last forever. It's not. It's going to swing in the direction. These oil prices at $70, $80, $90, $100 a barrel, it's absolutely going to get there. But that's going to cause a couple of things to happen. And we're already seeing it, right? Oil production's coming up. We've got too little oil production right now, but we're starting to see fracking wells come back online. We're starting to see production wells go back online. And the higher oil prices go, that's going to attract more drillers to produce more inventory. 
And we'll have another boom in bust in oil prices, as we always do. But in the heat of the moment, it's like, oh, this is going to last forever. We're never going, you know, we've got this inventory supply, you know, problem with oil. And we've got too little oil and too much demand. And it's never going to change. And it always does. Right now, you've got everybody short treasury bonds and long oil. That's going to reverse. So, I mean, if you want to make bets, you start betting in the direction. It's too early to do that. But the, the point is there's going to be some good opportunities on the long and short side of the things that you're currently long or short on. So, you know, these are just the way markets work. And we have to understand those dynamics and manage it accordingly. There's some good opportunities in energy right now because we are breaking out of long-term resistance levels on oil. It does suggest that oil prices can go higher, but those are an inflationary impact to consumers in an already weak economy. So those will change at some point. Not today, not tomorrow, not next week. But again, We'll have this run up in oil prices, and then it will peak and come back down again. But that's just the normal cycle of things. And this is the one thing we have to remember as investors is that nothing is permanent. Everything cycles. And it's just a function of the cycle and where you are within that cycle. Right now, we've got a lot of disruption going on in this particular moment in the economy. Supply chain disruptions, oil production problems, you know, you name it. We've got all kinds of problems with this economy and that's the lesson we should have learned from shutting down the economy. Don't do that. Economies weren't made to shut down. We've got problems, you know, that are occurring on the earnings front. With companies, and that's going to be, you know, problematic going forward. Inventories, prices, inflation, all that's going to impact earnings. And you've got a lot of companies that were predicting very robust earnings growth in the first and second quarter. Those are going to start to slow now, and that's going to put a lot of pressure in terms of valuations. So, again, just remember that nothing remains the way that we think it is momentarily, nothing lasts forever. It's important to understand the trend to participate with the trend, but also be aware this is the risk management point that these trends end. Just a question of when and what causes it. Be right back after the break. On the website is our technically speaking post today going through uh, kind of our view on the markets here currently. You know, as, as I talked about earlier, the, you know, the sell-off certainly, um, you know, upsetting. People weren't really expecting a 5% sell-off. Volatility has been very suppressed this year. Um, this, this is things that we had warned about back in July and August, almost ad nauseum here on the show. It's like, hey, be careful. We're going to have a correction here. Be, you know, manage some risk, reduce, you know, reduce your risk accordingly. Nobody listened, but, you know, now that we're there, all of a sudden people are going, wow, this... 5% is terrible. It's, you know, we're in a bear market. No, we're not. It's a 5% correction, completely normal. So just, you know, kind of keep things in perspective is very important in terms of managing your money. And this is why, as I was saying earlier, sometimes we feel like we have to do something, but you don't. And sometimes you just need to wait and let the markets go through whatever it's going through, let it throw its little tantrum, 
you know, kind of like raising kids. Sometimes you just got to set them in the corner and let them, let them scream it out for a bit and then they're over it. Right. And it's kind of the same thing with the markets. They've got to go through this adjustment every now and then. Sometimes you just got to let them do it and then you can figure out what to do next. But this is a good time, as I said earlier, to start to reevaluate the risk in your portfolio. If you, if you don't like the decline that we've been in, then you've got too much risk. It's that simple. It's, it's not anything magical. I'm writing an article um, coming up in the next couple of weeks talking about, you know, managing risk in a portfolio and how to do it. But it's something that we touched on a bit yesterday in our post on the website as well, talking about is the best way to manage money really the best way to manage money and this is one of the interesting facets of of the markets is that advisors will tell you is like and there's plenty of articles written about this that well evidence-based investing shows that you should just buy and hold a basket of index funds and you know invest long term the problem is is that that's fine there's nothing wrong with it and Buying and holding certainly works in a rising bull market. They don't work so well during corrections. And the key factor that these advisors that kind of do this armchair investing, right? Oh, here, come here and pay me a fee to put you in a basket of index funds and we'll just buy and hold them, is that it doesn't account for the losses in the portfolio over time that detract you away from getting to your goal. And this is the, the problem we have between the planning aspect of your financial goals and the attainment of those financial goals. When we plan for those goals, we assume that we're going to have some average annual rate of return, 6%, 7%, 8%, 10%, whatever, whatever number you want, right? I've got 100 grand in the bank. I want to retire with 2 million in the bank in 10 years, so I'm going to need X rate of return every year for the next 10 years to get there. Sounds great. Problem is markets don't work that way. And what we went through yesterday is showing the differentials between a couple of things. One thing is is that modern portfolio theory is the basis behind the entire buy and hold strategy. Buy a basket of index funds that are broadly diversified. So you buy international, emerging market, small cap, mid cap, large cap, you know, et cetera. Back in the late 70s, when modern portfolio theory really came around, markets were not correlated like they are today. The theory behind modern portfolio theory was is that over time, you're going to have the international markets will go up if the U.S. markets go down and, and vice versa. And so they'll kind of balance each other out, reduces your risk. And, and that was true in the 80s and really kind of part of the 90s. But as we got more, uh, I like the new term everybody's throwing around, around now, democratized. In other words, everybody's getting access to the same information. Well, once everybody started getting access to the same information and were get was getting that information at the speed of light now instead of having to wait a couple of days to get it like back in the day you had to wait for it to hit the newspaper and for the newspaper to get to your office and you actually read it now it's all over the internet 24 hours a day every every second of the day and everybody's got access to the same information at the same time and what that's led to, of course, is now this highly correlated set of markets. So if international markets, and, and this is the, the, the interesting thing, we're up in the United States. So markets have a good day in the United States. 
So China and international markets are up overnight because the United States was up. And since they were up overnight, we're up the next day because international markets were up and vice versa. So it's this loop of just money chasing money all around the globe. And this has led to these high, highly correlated markets. And so modern portfolio theory doesn't work like it used to because now when things go down, they all go down at the same time and they all go up at the same time. And this has led to lackluster returns. The other problem with the whole buy and hold analysis is the down years. And this is what nobody tells you. So going back to your financial plan, you're supposed to be making 6% a year. Well, let's make numbers easy. I'm supposed to make 10% a year. So I make 10% a year the first year. I make 10% a year the second year. I'm doing great, right? Got my 10% analyzed rates of return. Third year, I make 10%. Fourth year, I just lose 10%. Market's down 10% in year four. Now, when that happens, my average rate of return, 10, 10, 10, and negative 10, if I average that, my average rate of return is now five. I just cut my average rate of return from 10% that I was supposed to be getting to five. And here's the other problem is that I was supposed to make 10% in the fourth year, and I actually lost 10%. So now to get back on track to have my 10% annualized rate of return, it's not 10% to get back the next year. It's not 20% to get back the next year. It's 30%. Because that's the way averages work. And every year that I underperform that benchmark of 10% a year that I'm supposed to be getting, the further behind the curve I get. And you get to the point where you can't play catch up. And this is what happens to pension funds that bank on 7% annualized rates of return and why they're under like municipal pension funds, why they're all underfunded. But this is also why a lot of people fall well short of their financial goals because they take on too much risk, they lose too much money, and then they're behind this curve. Yes, you may get back to even, and you will get back to even. If you lose, you know, back in 2008, if you lost 50% of your money, it took you about six, seven years, but you finally got back to even. That's great. You got your money back. That's not the same thing as making money. Plus, because your financial plan said that you're supposed to have six, seven, eight, nine percent a year in returns. You've now got to make up those six or seven years of getting back to even. You've got to now add to the gains in the future of six, seven, eight, nine percent every year in the future. Plus, you've got to make up for all that seven years that you didn't get returns. Such is why when we take a look at wealth distributions and those type of things, so many Americans are so far behind their goals. They don't save enough, and they don't invest enough, and they don't manage risk. And armchair strategies, again, they work great in bull markets. And we go through the whole analysis on yesterday's blog post talking about it is the best way to invest, always the best way. Simple math tells you that buy and hold you know, indexing is fine in up markets. doesn't work well in down markets. And this is understanding the difference between what your needs are and what the financial advisor community's needs are or Wall Street's needs are. Wall Street needs you to buy and hold and keep funneling money into these indexes so they can charge you a fee. That's how they make money. 
If you sell everything and go to cash, this is why Wall Street never tells you to sell anything. Wall Street never tells you, it's like, hey, market's up here. We're way overbought. We're probably going to have a 5 to or 10% correction. Um, you know, you should probably sell some stuff and go to cash for a little bit. And then we'll tell you to come back in, you know, a little later. They, they don't do that. They just tell you to buy, 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 buy all the time. You got to buy. It's always an opportunity to buy. Markets are grossly overbought, time to buy. Markets are selling off, time to buy. Markets are at the bottom, time to buy. And, and, and there was a survey out yesterday. <laughs> they surveyed a bunch of individuals and they said, who do you trust for financial advice? Spouses, family members, friends, Wall Street and the media were the very last on the list and by far had the least amount of trust, like barely any at all. And it's not surprising. They've done it to themselves. The financial community has done it to themselves by, you know, providing years of bad advice and misinformation and touting it as some level of genius. Buy and hold is one of those strategies that it works well in a bull market. And it seems to be like the strategy to own until you get into a bear market. And then that reveals the ugly truth. You can do better. You can manage risk. And, and look, managing money is not difficult. It takes time and effort, but you can do it. But you got to have a discipline, a set of rules, a strategy, whatever it is. You've got to have some formation that you work on to manage your money, to take on risk accordingly, and to reduce risk. Investing is no different than gambling. Because in gambling, I'm betting on an unknown future. I've got a certain set of cards in my hands. That's the information I know versus the information I don't know, which is every other player at the table. It's the same thing in investing. I know what I have. What I don't know is what everybody else has, and I can't predict the future. So just like in poker where I manage my bets, I don't have a very good hand. I don't bet much. I've got a great hand. I bet a lot. It's the same thing investing. We just don't approach it mentally in the same manner, even though psychologically we know that's the case. All that's on our website. Both articles on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Make sure and sign up for our event, live event in Austin. It's our Right Lane Retirement Workshop, October the 16th. All the information's on the website. It's on our events tab. We'd love to see you there. Uh, of course, if you have any questions or comments, send us your emails as well. All at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. See you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world. It's a rich man's world.